Well, as, as I begin opening up the Word and expounding it to you this morning, I, I, have, I have two announcements. First is at the end of the message, we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper. It's very appropriate as we think about the plagues and we'll end with the plague of Passover. It's, it's very appropriate. Also, I want to mention that we have been pushing and encouraging you to read through the Bibles, read through the whole Bible together. Um, this year, we've distributed Bible reading schedules. We've been preaching through the Bible in an effort to help minimize the, um, how might I say, the, the unfamiliarity with much of it. Uh, my wife really has composed a bunch of songs called 12 Stages Bible Songs. 13 songs to teach the Bible structure and list. These songs are like not worship songs, but some of you have seen some of these. These are songs like um, that go through the, the prophets and you can sing through all the prophets and who they are and thus get to know them. They are songs that go through the plagues. They just kind of sing through the 12 plagues. You might know who the plagues are. They sing through also the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. And we have found a great help in this the book and we have a, a CD that we provided um, these are kind of things you may put by your kids' beds and just let them listen to this. We found great help in our family as we go through the Bible to know, oh, Ahaziah, I know he's a king and I know that Jehoram comes next. And Jehoram and Ahaziah and Athaliah and Joash and, and Josiah. And we just know the kings that come. And so when we hear those names come before us, we are, are familiar with them and they're no longer intimidating. And so we've got some copies for you at the back of the stage. Please take one as a gift from the Brandon family to you all. Just to help you, I want to do everything possible to help you read through the Bible. So, Vaughn's put much work into this the past couple of days. The Krauss family singers are on here. It's not a professional job in any sense, but it's the best we can do. And just if it helps in some ways, you all read through the Bible this year, our desire has been granted. So, that's my announcements. We come this morning to the book of Exodus. And uh, last week, when we finished the book of Genesis, we saw Jacob's sons arriving safely there in the land of Egypt. God providentially worked in the life of Joseph to save the people of Israel from the famine. And they settled in the land of Goshen where they acquired property and were fruitful and became very numerous. That was Genesis 47, verse 27. This morning, as we come to the book of Exodus... It's really a continuation of Genesis. The sons of Israel are still in the land of Egypt. They're still increasing in number. In fact, we read in Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, that the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. And such a population explosion among the Hebrew people was in fulfillment of everything that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To each of these patriarchs, God had promised that they would be a great nation. Right? And to be a great nation, you need to have a great number of people. And so, if the Hebrew people saw themselves increase in number, they would have been encouraged. But such an increase in the number of people caused great concern for the Pharaoh in Egypt. He said in Exodus 1, verse 9 and 10, Behold, The people, the sons of Israel, are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from their land. Moses was concerned this great number of people, the Hebrew people in the land of Egypt, would would leave the land someday. And it, it terrified him. And so his solution was to enslave them. 
He saw free labor. So enslave them and compel them to build storage cities for the Egyptians. And these Egyptians made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and in bricks. And, and due to their hardship, these people of Israel could do only one thing. They could merely just cry out to the Lord for help. The situation was difficult. They had these taskmasters over them who, who drove them to work for the Egyptian government. They had their quota of bricks to make. And if they failed to make, meet that quota, they were beaten and demanded more. When they pleaded for mercy and some time away to worship their Lord, Pharaoh accused them of being lazy. You lazy people! And drove them on all the more, increasing the quota and decreasing the work that they would do and bringing them straw. They had to keep that quota up. And such oppression caused them to seek relief from the only source possible, God Himself. They cried out to the Lord for help. And this is the story of the Exodus. It's a story of how God heard their groaning and how God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you remember, God had made some lofty and high promises to the patriarchs. He had promised to Abraham that He would be given a land. they would be making a great nation and that He would be given a great blessing but during the time of slavery in Egypt, none of these things were taking place. Oh, to be sure, they were increasing in number. They were becoming many, but that could hardly be called a great nation because they had no land to call their own. They were slaves. And on top of that, they weren't being blessed. They were oppressed. And the story of Exodus is a story of God bringing this numerous people into the, a land of their own, forming a nation of their own, and thereby... Becoming a blessing. Blessing them and allowing them to bless the world in reality. In other words, the story of Exodus is the story of God being true to His promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and fulfilling His promise. It says in chapter 3 of Exodus that God had seen the affliction of His people in Egypt. He was aware of their sufferings. He had heard their cry and He came to deliver them from their bondage. And He did so through a man named Moses. Well, open your Bibles, if you will, to Exodus chapter 6. The first eight verses of this passage here gives us a, a great summary of the book of Exodus, brings all of these thoughts that I have spoken here kind of all together in one passage, and it will form the springboard from which we're going to launch and talk about the story of Joseph. It, it speaks about how God is speaking to Moses. It acknowledges the groanings of the sons of Israel, and God says that I remember your promises and I'm going to set forth a plan to redeem the people in keeping with the promises. I've entitled my message this morning, Powerful Promises. Because here in Exodus chapter 6, I just have you to notice as I read through it, how many times are you going to see, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. God says, I think it's six, seven times. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven times. He's making these promise of how He's going to deliver you from the land of slavery. So just look. And as we see through the plagues of how He delivers them from the land, we see that God is powerful indeed. Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 2, God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, or Yahweh, or Jehovah, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, 
the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, and here come the promises, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord." My first point comes from verses 2 through 5. It's simply this. God remembers His promises. God remembers His promises. God begins here with a discussion with Moses by reflecting upon and, and recalling His interaction with the fathers. Moses told him that He appeared hundreds of years before to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Verse 3 says that He appeared to them. And let me, let me just say at this point, this is the benefit of going through the Bible as we are. Because we've already seen how God appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and right now in your mind, you can begin thinking about all the promises that came to them. And I would even argue that you cannot understand the book of Exodus without understanding the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Right? Because it's precisely because of the promise that God promises to deliver His people. Right? And that's the point of verse 5. I have heard the groanings of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. And here it is. I've remembered my covenant. The whole reason why God redeemed the people of Israel from slavery is because God remembered His covenant and was going to be faithful to it. That's my point. God remembers His promises. He'll be true to them. He'll keep them. Now it says here, if we look at the text closely here in verse 3, that He revealed Himself to them as God Almighty. That is, the powerful God. The all-powerful God. The Hebrew term translated here is El Shaddai, which means the all-powerful God. God Almighty. Right? Not just the mighty God, but the Almighty God is who we're talking about here. And He chased this down, and there are. He does indeed appear to Abraham. And He said in Genesis 17.1, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Isaac knew of the Almighty power of God when he blessed his son Jacob. He said, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. Genesis 28.3 And even Jacob knew God as God Almighty. Genesis 35, verse 11 I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. But here in verse 3, we find that God says His revelation to Moses was different. He didn't reveal Himself as God Almighty. He revealed Him to Moses by His name, as it says there, Lord. Or as the Hebrew says, Yahweh. Now, if you look at your English Bibles carefully, you'll see that the word there, Lord, is in all capital letters. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And when the Lord is in all capital letters like that, it signifies the name of the Lord. Perhaps in your margin, you, you see something that says uh, YHWH. It's in the name of God. To the best of our knowledge, it's best pronounced Yahweh. Some translations like the American Standard Version of 1901 translates this using Jehovah, which is a good word, right? So, I revealed myself to you, Moses, by my name, Yahweh or Jehovah. If you've read through the book of Genesis, you know that names have significance. 
Abraham, Abraham, father of a multitude, right? Isaac, eat sock to, to laugh because Sarah laughed at the hearing that he's going to say she's going to have a child. Jacob, Yaakov, heel because Jacob was grabbing the heel, supplanting, right? Joseph, Yasaf means to add. Rachel prayed the Lord, prayed that the Lord would add to her another son. And the imagery here of the Lord's name Yahweh is equally rich. God appeared to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. And when Moses, he said initially to Moses, go and talk to the people, the sons of Israel. Initially, Moses kind of objected. He says, what if they ask me what his name is? What's your name? And he said, I am who I am. And the name Yahweh is related to these words. Yahweh is a form of to be. So when God says His name, He is being. That's what God's name means. It means being. He is the Eternal One. The One with everlasting character. The One who has always existed and always will be. The Ancient of Days. The Self-Existent One who needs no other. And that's what God is saying here. But by My name, Yahweh, I did not make Myself known to them, but now I am making Myself known to you. Now the reason why this word isn't translated, is mostly because of um, Hebrew culture. Um, many considered Jews God to be so high and holy that we shouldn't even say His name. I mean, we do this with people, right? The President of the United States walks into a room, people ask Him questions, what do they say? They say, Mr. President, da-da-da-da. Because of His position of authority, He's respected. And so also with God, the Jewish people consider His name so holy they wouldn't even say it. That's why we don't even know exactly how to say Yahweh or Jehovah. Because for hundreds, thousands of years, the Jews never said the name of God. In fact, even when they're reading along, when it says, you know, I appear to you by my name, they come across Lord, they'll replace it and they'll say Adonai, which is Lord. Or they will say Hashem. Hamiz, the name is what they will say. And so, in an effort, in some sense, to do what they have done, the New American Standard, just every time, and many Bibles do this, any time it says Yahweh, they just put Lord. But Lord is His name. And we will see, even coming through the Exodus, that the name of God is a big deal. And He wants to make His name Jehovah known. That's the point of verse 3. In verse 4, again, He's remembering the promises. I established My covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan the land in which they are sojourning. Two weeks ago, we went through several passages that demonstrate that God made this promise to Abraham and He made it to Isaac and He made it to Jacob. And when God makes a promise, you might be sure that it comes to pass. I mean, that was a thrust of my message last week that God will go through incredible means to ensure that His promises are fulfilled. He will even use the evil of others. In fact, He will even design the evil of others to accomplish His good intent. You meant it for evil, but I, God, meant it for good. And this morning, we're going to see just the incredible lengths that God goes through in order to ensure that His promises go through. You see, these plagues that He brings upon Egypt. He didn't have to bring these plagues. But He wanted to, to demonstrate His great power that His name might be known among the nations. Well, God remembers His promise. My point number two is this. God renews His promise. I'm going to jump to the end of the text because that's where God picks up this thing again. I think it makes most logical sense to look at that. He renews His promise. Look at verse 7. Then I will take you for My people 
And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. These verses really are a renewal of the promises that God made to the patriarchs. As I said before, it's been several hundred years since they'd heard from God, and now again from the mouth of God, He renews His covenant with them. And He wants to affirm to them these promises that made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still hold true today. He said, verse 8, I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you for a possession. Everything I promised about the land, it's going to come true for you. But the better renewal is found in verse 7. In this verse, God promises to be their God and they will be His people. And that is ultimately, that's the best promise that God has in all the Scriptures. I will be your God and you will be my people. It's repeated many, many times. One commentator said that it was almost 50 times in the Bible. This promise is stated in one way or another. It's really the ultimate pledge of God. Which You'll see this as you read through the Bible again and again and again. I will be your God and you will be my people. We will dwell together. We will be with one another. We will enjoy one another. That is the message of the Bible. God made it to Abraham. Genesis 17.7 I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. God promised it in Jeremiah's day. Jeremiah 31, verse 33. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Ezekiel said the same thing. Ezekiel 36, verse 28. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will be my people and I will be your God. I just want you to hear this again and again and again because you read through, you're going to hear this. You will be my people, I will be your God. Zechariah said the same thing. Behold, I am going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west and I will bring them back and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. And ultimately, did you know that in Jesus Christ, this promise comes to us? It's by faith that we come a part of the people of God and can enjoy this same promise as well. Hosea prophesied of a day in which God would say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. And he's talking there about the Gentiles who are off, who weren't God's people. As Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, that that's fulfilled in the church. When those who are far off become near and come to God and become in Christ Jesus the people of God. And in fact, this affirmation continues throughout all eternity. Revelation 21, perhaps you know the, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. God says, Revelation 21, verse 3, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. This is a great reality that all of us who believe and trust in Christ can look forward to. The time in which we'll be with God and fellowship with Him in the fullness of His presence. He'll be with us. We will be with Him. And that is our great goal. That is our great longing to be with God. And the psalmist said it right. Psalm 144, verse 15. How blessed 
are the people whose God is the Lord. You are blessed if God is your Lord. And so really, I ask you that. Do you know God this morning? Do you know God the Lord? Is He a blessing in your life? Do you know of this blessing? Right? The only way to know Him is through Jesus Christ. Right? God, Jesus said that, right? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. So it's faith in Jesus that brings you to God. And do you long to be with God? Do you long to have Him be your God and, and to be His people? I exhort you to do so. Love Jesus. Well, that's a renewal of a promise. I want to show you that extends throughout all the Scripture. It even comes to us. Point number three, God redeems His people. Here, I want to pick up the verse that I skipped here in verse 6. God redeems His people or God will redeem His people. Verse 6, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, right? I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. You know, God had made some promise to Abraham and to his offspring, but here in verse 6, these are specific promises made to Moses. Because at the time of Moses, they were under bondage, and these are particular promises to redeem them and rescue them out of slavery. He says, you're experiencing hardships as slaves right now? Well, I will bring you out and I will set you free from slavery. He says, you people are in the bondage that you're experiencing right now. I know that, but soon you're going to be set free. I will deliver you. I know that you're slaves right now, but I will ransom you out of your slavery. I will redeem you. Three times here in this verse. I will, I will, I will. I will take you out. I will rescue you. And it's clear what God plans to do. He plans to take the people out of Egypt and free them. Now, never think that such things caught God by surprise. It's not as if these people now were in slavery and God says, Oh no, my people, they should be in Canaan. But now, they're in slavery in a, in a foreign land. What am I going to do? Perhaps you remember in Genesis 15 that God told Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. Where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, <clears throat> and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. Even in promising to Abraham, he knew that the people would go into slavery. In fact, even God caused them to go into slavery, right? God caused them to go into Egypt, right? That was last week, Genesis 50, verse 20. And he knew, God did, that he would redeem the people from slavery and thereby giving great glory to himself. That's the point of Exodus. God redeems His people in such a way that He brings great glory to Himself. I mean, I think about His redemption that God could have done out of the land of slavery. He could have done so in many, many different ways. You remember when He called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans? What did He say to Abraham? Get up and go to a land I'll show you. And certainly, you have to believe that God was capable of softening Pharaoh's heart to the cause of the Hebrew people. Hey, they're slaves. They're God's people. Right? Let them go. God certainly could have softened Pharaoh's heart. He could have easily turned the heart of Pharaoh as channels and water to allow this to take place. And the reason why I say this is because time after time after time after time again, you see in the story of Exodus how God hardens the heart of Pharaoh so that he won't let the people go. 
God could very easily soften the heart of Pharaoh so as to let the people go. But you know what? This is the point, precise point of the narrative. Is that God hardens Pharaoh's heart so as to reveal His power and thus bring great glory to His name. And it's only because, you need to think about this, it's only because Pharaoh wouldn't let the people go that God was enabled to put His amazing power on display for all to see. Which leads to my fourth and final point this morning. And though it's my final point, don't get too anxious because it's my longest point as well. God reveals His power. I want to focus here on the last phrase of verse 6 where it says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. These words, the outstretched arm and the great judgments refer to the power of God in the plagues that came upon Egypt. You see them being used that way in chapter 7, verses 4 and 5. It's great judgments, the outstretched arm. And that's how God is going to redeem these people, through plagues. Now, every child in Sunday school is told of these ten plagues in the land of Egypt. Each of them have a similar pattern. They don't always follow this pattern, but it normally goes something like this. Moses and his brother Aaron come to Pharaoh and say, Thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, Who's Yahweh? I don't know him. We're not going to let you go. With his hard heart, he refuses to let them go. And then Moses and Aaron say, well, this plague is going to come upon the land of Egypt. And they normally tell Pharaoh beforehand, this is what's going to happen. Then Moses and, Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron leave Pharaoh's presence. And sure enough, exactly like Moses and Aaron had said would happen, it happens exactly as they predicted. And then this plague comes upon Egypt. Pharaoh experiences how difficult and how nasty and terrible this plague is. And Pharaoh then calls for Moses and Aaron. Hey, bring these guys in here! And pleads that they would stop the plague. Pharaoh knew clearly that Moses and Aaron had the power through God, through Jehovah God, that that could take place. And then he promises to let the people go once the plague subsides. So Moses and Aaron say, okay. And they go out and they stop the plague. And then Moses hardens his heart. He refuses to let the people of Israel go. And so the process starts all over again. Moses and Aaron come into to Pharaoh and they say, let my people go. And Pharaoh has a hard heart, says, I'm not going to let you go. And so Moses and Aaron say, well, this is the plague that's going to come upon the land of Egypt. Pharaoh says, well, I'm not going to let you go. And so Moses and Aaron leave the presence of Pharaoh and sure enough, exactly as they predicted comes to pass. Pharaoh experiences how terrible that plague is. He says, get that Aaron and that Moses guy back in here. And says, I'll tell you what, let's strike a deal. If you stop the plague, I'll let the people go. So they say, okay. And in fact, even in some sense, they say, okay, the, the honor is yours, Pharaoh. You tell us when the plague should stop. He says, tomorrow stop it. So they say, okay. So Moses and Aaron then go out, raise their hand to the Lord, pray to the Lord, seek the Lord. The plague stops tomorrow. And then Pharaoh hardens his heart again. And refuse to let him go. And the same thing comes again. Ten different times this whole thing is repeated. First, the water in the Nile is turned to blood. It happens in chapter 7. The fish that were in the Nile died. The Nile became foul and smelly and awful. So the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. It was a nasty place. In order to get water, they had to drink around, dig around the well of the Nile 
You know, it was a river, so they didn't have to dig down deep, but they had to dig deep down there in order to get some pure water to be able to drink because the whole Nile was blood. The second plague that came, frogs upon the entire land. They came into houses, into bedrooms, under their beds, in their ovens, in their kneading bowls. They were everywhere. In fact, we read through the Bible with our children. Even our children said, hey, they had all these frog pets. That was, must have been pretty fun, right, Dad? You know, I mean, have your kids, maybe kids, you've done this before, caught a frog and kind of had him, you know, jumping around in your hands. I know, Lydia, I know you've done that before. Right? You get around, it bounces around, and, and they, they were kind of thinking that. What are you going to say, Krista? You what? You've done that before? Other kids have done that before. They have their frogs in there. and um, But this would have been far different. Frogs in your ovens, in your kneading bowls, you open up your closets, you know, they, they jump out and they're all over the place. It became a pain. They were everywhere. The third plague, gnats all upon the land of the Egyptians. It may have been lice. As the King James says, most commentators today think it's gnats, little creatures everywhere making a nuisance of themselves, right? And you guys know what it's like to be out in the summer and you know, you got these bugs all over the place. You didn't like that at all. The gnats came. Fourth, God brought great swarms of flies upon the land. A similar deal, right? These flies all over the place, right? Just bothering you. And Pharaoh says, get these things out of here. The Lord caused an east wind or west wind and it comes and takes away all those flies. Fifth, plague. God brought a severe pestilence on the land of the livestock. All the horses and donkeys and camels and sheep and cows that were in the field died. And you know, it was only the Hebrew, it was only the Egyptian ones that died. And we see the power of God often in these plagues. He distinguishes between His people and the people of Egypt just to show off His power. He says, I can cause flies just to come to Egypt, but not to Israel. I can cause this pestilence to, to kill all the cattle all the donkeys, all the camels of Egyptian livestock, but none of the Hebrew ones. The sixth plague was boils. People broke out with sores on man and beast in the land of, the, of Egypt. And, and they were so sore on their bodies that many couldn't even come into the court of Pharaoh when summoned. Aaron and Moses could because they weren't struck. And the text doesn't say this, but I wouldn't be surprised if all of Israel didn't have boils, but all of Egypt did. Hail! came upon the land of Egypt so heavy. It was the seventh plague that all who were in the field died. We don't know how big the hailstones were. You know, but enough so if you were out in the field without shelter, these hailstones are going to come down and pound upon you and pound upon the livestock and killed all of the, the produce that was coming out of the field. Now, fortunately, there was another crop coming up after that, but all the crop there, boom, destroyed by the hail. The eighth plague, God brought locusts upon the land. And as this next crop came up, the locusts came and destroyed everything that wasn't damaged by the hail. In fact, it says in Exodus 10.15 that nothing green was left on tree or plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. The ninth plague was darkness upon the land. The darkness was so great that for three days, the people of Egypt did not see each other, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. I've always been fascinated by this plague. Because it's so dark, they can't even see one another. But in the land of Goshen, life went on just as normal. Somehow God brought this ray of light into Goshen and the people there walked in and out and said, hey, it's a lovely day today. But dark, I mean, God can separate light and darkness in the air. It shows His power. And then the worst of all, tenth, the Lord went through all Egypt during the night and killed the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne 
even to the firstborn of the slave girls behind the millstones and the firstborn of the cattle as well. The Lord going through the land of Egypt, discriminating clearly of the firstborn of the families and seeing to it they died. Now you have to ask yourselves this question. You think about the plagues. Why did God do such a thing? Why did He do it? It seems to be cruel and unusual, cruel and unusual punishment in many ways. But fortunately for us, you go throughout these plagues, God gives specific statements in the Bible about why He did what He did. And that's our purpose. I want to take you to a few of them. Oh, turn over in your Bibles to um, Exodus chapter 7, verse 3. There we read, <clears throat> verse 3, 4, and 5, I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt with great judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. Here's the purpose of it all. God hardens Pharaoh's heart so that with a purpose he might multiply his signs and his wonders. And the end of it all comes in verse 5. That the Egyptians will know that it was the Lord. It was Yahweh. It was His name. It was Him who brought them out from the land of slavery. In other words, God performed His signs that His name might be made known, even especially to the Egyptians. Then when they hear the name of the Lord, they say, Oh, I know that God. He's the God of the place. He's a powerful God. Well, let's turn over to another one. Exodus chapter 7, verse 17. Thus says the Lord, By this... You shall know that I am the Lord, right? Again, the same thing. By this you'll know that I'm Yahweh. By this you'll know that I am the self-existent God. Behold, I will strike the water that's in the Nile with a staff that's in my hand. It will be turned to blood. Right? As the waters turn to blood, Pharaoh will know that the Lord Yahweh is the one working the miracle. A purpose statement again comes in chapter 8, verse 21. For if you do not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and on the people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians will be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they dwell. But on that day, and here we see the distinguishing power of God controlling flies. On that day, verse 22, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people are living so that no swarms of flies will be there in order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. Right? What an amazing thing, right? The, the swarms of flies come only upon the land of the Egyptians, not upon the land of Goshen where the people of Israel were living. And the division came about specifically with a purpose that Pharaoh might know that Yahweh, Jehovah, was in the midst of the land. Specific plague so that Yah. Pharaoh might know that Yahweh is God. Exodus chapter 9, verse 13. I read 13, 14 through 16. <clears throat> the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that... Okay, you got to catch these purpose clauses. God is really clear why He did these things. So that you may know that there is no one like Me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth My hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you My power 
and in order to proclaim My name throughout the whole earth. I trust you're beginning to see a pattern here. Right? Verse 14 says that God set these plagues so that the Egyptians might know that there is no other God like the Lord in all the earth. Verse 16 says that God was allowing the Egyptians to stay alive that He might have the opportunity to show His power in His name. Right? Yahweh throughout the whole earth. Right? It just says there these two things I've been kind of pounding into you. Right? In order to show My power, just how strong God is. And also My name that you know who it is that has all that power. It's Jehovah. It is the Lord. It is Yahweh Himself. At this point, you need to see that God was in absolute control over this whole situation. God determined what plagues would come, when the plagues would come, who the plagues would affect, and how severe they might be. He could have wiped the Egyptians away. But you know what? What if God would have wiped the Egyptians away with a pestilence? What would have happened? God would have lost His stage and would no longer have had the opportunity to display His wondrous power. You know, I remember visiting a farm one time and uh, this farm had a dog. It was a big German shepherd. And this big German shepherd was kind of sitting in the shade of a, of, of a barn. And he's kind of sitting there, kind of doing something. And so I investigated, looked further. I found out this German shepherd had a mouse that he caught. And had this mouse in his paws. And kind of, um, you know, would just let it go a little bit. It'd scamper away and then, boom, you know, would catch it by its claws. And then, then would kind of grab it and, you know, kind of bring it in and kind of head it around. And then maybe put it in his mouth a little bit, kind of spin him by the tail and then let him go. And the, the terrified mouse would take off and, and the, you know, the German shepherd would, you know, grab it and you kind of grill it in again and just having fun toying with this uh, mouse. And what happens if the German shepherd would have killed the mouse? Fun's over. <laughs> I don't want to do that. I'm going to keep the mouse alive, right? So you could have the fun with it. You know what? That's a little bit like what God was doing with Pharaoh. He was playing with Pharaoh for his own glory. Should the heart of Pharaoh be soft? Let the people go? No more fun. No more display of God's glory. And lest you think that my language there even is wrong and deceitful about God, look over at chapter 10. Moses said, verse 1 and 2, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I might perform these signs of mine among them. God hardened their hearts so that God would perform their signs. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians. And now I perform my signs among them that you may know that I am the Lord. God was mocking all-powerful Pharaoh. He was toying with him. He was playing with him, saying, you think you're powerful, Pharaoh. You have dominion over all these million people as slaves. I am the one who's more powerful than you are. And your power is like nothing before me. God was mocking them. And God hardened Pharaoh's heart and the heart of the servants with a specific goal that he might do these signs so that God's name would be told from generation to generation to generation to generation to generation. You might tell your sons. You might tell your sons' sons. And they might tell. And for whole history 
And I'd always look back upon what I did with Pharaoh and for all time, you can tell the people of how glorious I am and how powerful I am. In fact, even as you read through the Bible, you're going to find time and time and time again, this event of the Exodus referred to again and again and again to speak of God and His mighty power and the glory of His name. Well, we could look at other passages here in the Exodus uh, story and narrative that make the same point. The reason why God did these plagues was so as to make His glory known, to show His power and to make His name known, not only to the Egyptians, but also to the Jews as well who would hear the story down through the ages. In fact, that's the point that Paul makes in Romans chapter 9, verse 17. The Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate My power in you that My name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Like the promise of the patriarchs, again and again and again, you'll see these plagues again and again and again mentioned in Scripture very often. Well, as I bring my message to a close this morning, I want us to focus upon and think upon the last plague, which is about the death of the firstborn. Because in this plague, God displays His power in greater ways than all the others. And this way, God sets up a ritual that for time, forever, people would always reflect upon this. And know that He is the Lord. Turn over to Exodus chapter 11. We see in verses 4 through 8 the story of what will take place. Moses said to the people of Israel, okay, not to Pharaoh this time, Thus says the Lord, about midnight, I'm going out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the millstones. All the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before and such as shall never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Israel, Egypt and Israel. All of these your servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me, saying, Go out! you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. By far, this is the worst plague that comes upon the people of Egypt. I mean, the people of Egypt had experienced uh, sour drinking water. But they got around that just by digging in the side of the Nile. They'd experienced darkness of land. It really just brought life to a standstill for a couple of days. They'd experienced nuisance from frogs, gnats, and insects. That's just a nuisance. You can live beyond that. They'd experienced the pains of boil upon their skin. Getting a little more personal, right? Skin for skin. That's what God, that's what the devil told um, God about Job. Start touching more closely. But they got over that. They experienced loss of crops. Their financial trust and help was all gone. To the hail and locusts. And they didn't even experience some death before, right? Their livestock had died in the plail, in the hail, and the pestilence upon the livestock. And in fact, even those men who refused to seek shelter died as well. So they experienced some things, but this last plague was by far the worst and most extensive. Every family tasted death personally. From the royal family to the slave girl, from the highest official to the captive in the dungeon, including their livestock including their animals, including their pets, including their cows, including their camels, every firstborn died. And as the Lord went through the land of Egypt, 
He was very careful and discerning. It was only the firstborn that was put to death. But it was the firstborn that was put to death, both man and animal. And I'll say this, such a deed not only demonstrates God's power, but also demonstrates God's omniscience. I mean, how else could God visit hundreds of thousands of homes and come in and discern which child or animal was the firstborn and see that it died? takes power, right? takes omniscience, right? They're sleeping in their beds. He knows which one is the oldest. He goes out to the, to the cattle, to the barn, and he knows which offspring was first. Strikes them all dead. This plague is ultimately the one that broke the heart of Pharaoh. In other plagues, we saw Pharaoh bending the knee, bending his... I'm sorry, we saw Pharaoh bending... Attempting maybe to make deals with Moses, right? During the plague of the hail. He, he said, he confessed his sin against the Lord. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. But later he hardened his heart as he didn't fear the Lord. During the plague of the locusts, Pharaoh came and told Moses, go, serve the Lord, your God. Right? But when the plague relented, once again, he hardened his heart. He, he said, go, serve the Lord, right? But he wouldn't let his children go. You, you go without your kids. And Moses said, no, 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 I've got to go with my children. Pharaoh saw that throughout the land there was no home which someone wasn't dead and finally he let the people go. And the Hebrew people were enabled to escape before God hardened His heart again. Because it's important, they got out before Pharaoh hardened his heart because even in this last one, even as broken as he was, finally said, okay, let everybody go, he still hardened his heart and follows after them. We don't have time to look at that this morning, but that's the great plague of the, of the Red Sea. Splits the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army comes in and buries them and kills them all. Now, the miraculous thing, though, this story is this, is that none of the Hebrew households experienced death because God made a distinction between Egypt and Israel. In Goshen, all was still that night. Not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. As it says in verse 7, not even a dog barked. It's because these Hebrew households were told what to do to escape death. The first 13 chapters, first 13 verses of chapter 12, we could read there and find out what it was that the Israel people, the Hebrew people had to do. Here's what they had to do. On the 10th of the month, God told them to take an unblemished male lamb, take it into your home for a few days. And four days later, on the 14th of the month, you're to take that lamb and slaughter it together at twilight. Twilight just when it's starting to get dark you slaughter that precious lamb that had come into your home. And then when you take that lamb, you take the blood and paint just red all along the sides of the doors and all along the, the top crossbar of the door at night. And then you eat everything of that lamb and then go to sleep and sleep soundly. Because when the Lord came at midnight and He saw the blood upon your house, it will pass over your house. And he'll pass over the next house if there's blood there, but if there wasn't any blood there, he was going to kill the firstborn. And that's indeed what happened. He killed the firstborn land of Egypt, but in the land of Goshen, where the Hebrew people were, they'd painted their doorposts. And what did God do? He passed over those homes. And thus the name Passover. And from that day on, 3,400 years ago, the Jews has celebrated the Passover feast. 3,400 years. It's by divine mandate, right? Look at verse 24 of chapter 12. 
God says this, And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and for your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord gives you, as He has promised, you shall observe this rite. And when your children say to you, What does this rite mean to you? You shall say, It is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when He smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. Right? This is my point. Right? It really comes back to Chapter 6, right? God reveals His power in the plagues. The whole reason why the Jewish people were to celebrate the Passover was so that they could tell the children about God's power in redeeming them from slavery in Egypt. And I say to you, if you ever have the opportunity to celebrate a Seder meal with some Jewish people, jump at the chance and take it. Because it will teach you much about the Exodus It will teach you much about how big that event was for the Jews because the whole dinner is centered around retelling this story of the Exodus. Through extensive symbolism, right? many things describe the events that take place. They have some salt water on the table to represent the tears of the people in bondage. They serve bitter herbs and horseradish to represent, as you taste it, to taste the bitterness of slavery. They make up this mixture of, of apples and and nuts, and um, cinnamon, right? Which represents the mortar that the Israel people used in uh, putting these storage cities together. And at one point in the meal, they go through each of the ten plagues, thinking through each of them what God did. Right? The water in the Nile is turned to blood. There were frogs, there were gnats, swarms of insects, insects, pestilence on livestock. Then there was the boils, and then the hail, and the locusts. And the darkness and the death of firstborn, right? And it kind of draws it out and speaks about all those different plagues. And throughout the meal, they only eat unleavened bread. And so it reminds them of the fact that they left in haste and didn't have time for the bread to rise. And at four different points in the meal, a cup of wine is toasted. As they go over, by the way, the four promises, well, they, they split down to four, of Exodus chapter 6 where we began. You remember there, I will, I will, I will. Each of those says, this is a pledge to God. Right? I will deliver you. You know, and then they drink. This is a pledge to God. I will take you out. This is a pledge to God. I will redeem you. This is a pledge to God. I will be your people. And they take four times throughout. They take this drink of the cup of wine in celebration of the promises from Exodus chapter 6. And the very last thing that's eaten is the last remnants of a piece of unleavened bread that was hidden away and finally it comes back and they break it, and they eat it, and they drink of the cup. And then they go on their way and they sing a hymn. The Psalter, from Psalm 115 to probably Psalm 118 is the hymn they sing. Does that sound familiar to any of you? It's the supper that the Lord ate on that final night. Right? It was a Passover meal that Jesus celebrated. And maybe you remember the last thing He did the meal. He took the bread and He broke it and He distributed it to all. Because that's what they did in the Jewish culture. That's what they do today. And he took the cup. And he blessed it. And he said some things. And then he drank it. But this Passover meal that Jesus celebrated, it was a bit different than the Passover meal that had been celebrated for 1,400 years. Jesus took the bread. And he broke it. Remember what he said? This is my body broken for you. Do this remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. And remember what he said about the cup? 
This cup is a new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. And what he's doing, he's changing this whole ritual. He said, no longer should you tell your children about Israel, Exodus, and Moses, but you should tell them about me and my redemption that I'm going to deliver you from. You should tell them a redemption that's in Jesus Christ. Right? The bread and the cup, the Passover meal today, should be taken in remembrance of Jesus and His redemption. It's because Jesus is our Passover lamb. It says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. And it is on account of His blood that God will pass over our sin. You know, we're in the same danger today as the people living in Egypt were 3,400 years ago. The Lord was going through the land, visiting every household and bringing death to the firstborn within that home. And the only way to escape was to put blood around your door. And so also can all of us expect a visit from the Lord someday. And due to our sin, we deserve death and punishment, right? The wages of sin is death. And the only way to escape this fate is to have the blood of Jesus applied to our lives so that God will pass over us and the angel of death won't visit us. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when you believe and trust in Christ, it is as if God takes His blood and applies it to the doorpost of your life. And when God looks upon you, He will simply pass over your sin because He has dealt with the sin through the cross. And rather than dying, your sins will be redeemed. You will be set free. That's the glory of the Gospel of Christ. Right? When John the Baptist looked off far off, there was Jesus. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's Jesus who is the Lamb. He has become our Passover Lamb. And even as I think about my outline today, I was thinking about everything that's true in Jesus, that God remembers His promise. A promise long ago in the garden, Genesis 3.15, to provide someone to destroy the serpent. He did. He renews His promise often in the Bible. We often hear again and again and again of how Christ is the One. Christ is the One. He's coming, He's coming, and finally He comes. How God redeems His people. I mean, we are redeemed through Christ and through His blood. And God reveals His power in the way in which He redeems His people. You know that in the sacrifice and death of Christ, tremendous power was displayed. Power and weakness as God came down to be a man to die for the sins of those who would believe. And you simply need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ have your sin wiped away and have your sin passed over. It's a constant message of the Bible. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. If you confess with your mouth Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. The Gospel of John was written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. And really, that's why we gather together. That's why this church exists. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper is because we have believed and we have trusted and we take this bread and we eat of it because we say we have trusted not in Moses' deliverance, but we've trusted in the deliverance of Christ. Right? And we drink this cup not because we trust in the deliverance of Moses, but because we trust in the deliverance of Jesus Christ. So here, even in a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper and if you are a Christian and believing and trusting in Christ, 
Evaluate your life and say, I'm walking in holiness before the Lord. I love Him and I want to pursue Him and love Him diligently. Then by all means, take of this. But if there's sin in your life that's unconfessed, or if you're not a believer in Christ, let the cup and the bread pass. Because even as Paul warns us, if you eat and drink, having judged the body wrongly, you eat and drink judgment to yourself. But if you judge the body rightly, you can rejoice knowing in the full assurance that you have of the fact that God will pass over your sins through the blood of Christ. Let's pray as we uh, transition think about the Lord's Supper. Lord, I think about it again. We come to celebrate the Lord's Supper as we do often. And it is something that we do to gather as a community. And it is something that we do in corporate solidarity to show our faith and trust in Jesus because there are many of us, but there's one loaf. And so, God, I pray this. We even reflect upon the story of the redemption from Egypt. As we think about the great redemption that's in Christ, I pray that for the praise of Your glory, we would rejoice in Him. God, we long for the day that we will see the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven and we will be with You and You will be our God and we will be Your people. And this cup and this bread that we take of this morning is something we do until You come. Because even Paul says that you do this until you come. It's a proclamation, God, of our trust in your return. So I pray, Lord, as we take of this, may you be delighted. God, as we take it, may we delight ourselves the fact that you came and you died. That by faith and trust in him, we might be redeemed from our sins. Amen. So when the men will come forward with the, the bread, I invite you to just take the...